Our Lord is mere hours from being crucified for the sins of his people. Uh, Jesus is crucified on Friday morning, and our passage today takes place on Thursday evening. So the public the public ministry of Jesus has come to an end with chapter 12, but now on the eve of the hour of his glorification, Jesus gathers his disciples together and he addresses them privately in this new section of John's gospel. Chapter 13 is the setup. It's the introduction for what's come to be called the farewell discourse of chapters 14 through 16, followed by Jesus' prayer, sometimes called his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And in his farewell discourse, Jesus is speaking to men who have lived with him for three years. They've heard his teaching. They've witnessed all of his miracles. They've, they've seen God perfectly displayed in all of Jesus' actions and words for three years, day after day. These men have seen the Father glorified through his obedient Son. And over this time, the disciples have come to love Jesus deeply. But now, mere hours from death, mere hours from bearing the sin of the world and the holy wrath of God, we find it's the disciples who are in crisis mode, and Jesus is comforting them. On this night of all nights, when it would have been very appropriate for the apostles to encourage Jesus and to support Jesus, we discover that they can only see their loss. And so on the very night that Jesus is to taste death on their behalf, he speaks to their confused bewilderment and their fickle faith, their dim vision, and their self-absorption. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's how the next chapter, chapter 14, begins. Do not let your hearts be troubled. But why are their hearts troubled? What has the disciples so upset? It's because their hopes and their ambitions for Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the King of Israel, and they, his loyal followers, are collapsing all around them. That's what's happening in chapter 13. The disciples' sense of what's supposed to happen as a result of Jesus' mission, it's, all, it's, it's slipping through their fingers. They were expecting Jesus to come into Jerusalem and begin a revolution, right? Instead, he came in on a donkey. That was, you know, but maybe things can start up again, you know. Jesus the Messiah was supposed to drive the occupying Romans out of the holy city, followed by all the land that Yahweh had promised the father Abraham, Jesus, the Messiah, was supposed to turn the hearts of the people of Israel back to the law of Moses, inaugurating an eternal era of righteousness and covenant fidelity, and then they, the 12 disciples, would serve as ministers of state, ruling in the Davidic kingdom 2.0, with Jesus seated on his royal throne. So how in the world does it come to this? What's what is Jesus doing stripping to the waist and washing their dirty, stinking feet like he's a lowly slave or something? I mean, that's nothing compared to riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's positively scandalous. What kind of Messiah, what kind of king is that? And why does Jesus keep telling them on the eve of revolution over and over that he's leaving them? Leaving? Good grief. 
They've given up everything. They've forsaken everything for Jesus. And now Jesus is abandoning them. It's an unmitigated disaster. Look at chapter 13, verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter is the leader of this apostolic band, and yet he's going to deny that he even knows Jesus three times before morning. I mean, if that's going to happen to Peter, then, then what hope do the rest of them have? And then adding to the disciples' confusion and doubt and fear, Jesus says in verse 21 that one of the 12 apostles is going to betray him. It's just bad news after bad news. And so their hearts are troubled. They're deeply upset. The apostles are discouraged. Why? Because who Jesus is and the gospel itself, what God is going to accomplish in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, is not clear to them at this point. And so this is precisely what Jesus teaches on his last last evening with them. Our Lord does so in words, the whole of the farewell discourse, but also in a very, very famous deed. He washes their feet. Look at your big picture in your bulletin handout. Our Lord's foot washing points to his death on the cross. The exalted Messiah assumes the role of the despised servant to cleanse others. This is to be our example, Christian. In this moment, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Son of Man, God himself, kneels before his disciples to serve them. And so the radical nature of the gospel and and the radical response it requires is presented to us in dramatic fashion, beloved. And we see this in the second point of our sermon outline, Jesus' stunning humble act of foot washing displays his love. It symbolizes spiritual cleansing, both in our initial justification and cleansing from daily sin with confession. And it models how we should serve each other. Brothers and sisters, I I trust that we've we've gathered this Lord's Day with a humble desire to, to sit under the preached word of God that the Holy Spirit working through the word might challenge and, and correct our thinking and our outlook and indeed all, our, all of our prioritizations in life. That's what we want, to put, to put to death even our most cherished idols. We want to be a people mastered by the word of God, don't we? Well then, for those with ears to hear, What Jesus has to teach us in this passage is life transforming. This is church transforming. Our Lord's foot washing points to his death on the cross 
The exalted Messiah assumes the role of the despised servant to cleanse others, and this is to be our example. So look at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. That is, the Passover meal was about to begin. And of course, John's inviting us to see in the foot washing an anticipation of Jesus' own climactic Passover act as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, that's a theme that John's been developing throughout this book. Because all along up to chapter 12, Jesus has said that his climactic hour, that time determined by his heavenly Father when he would be exalted on the cross, when he would be glorified, that it has not yet arrived. But you'll recall when Greek Gentiles asked to see Jesus in chapter 12, Jesus then receives the crucial signal. The last act is now. Now the time has come. The hour of the Son of Man's glorification has come at last. From chapters 12 on, you see this. Now is the time. And so John writes, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world, this world, and to go to the Father. But that's not all Jesus knows. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, just for the moment, I'm only just pointing out this knowledge of Jesus. We'll come to verse 3 in a bit. And when we do, we'll see why John makes these bookend statements in verses 1 and 3 about what Jesus knows. Uh, He's addressing a very, very specific situation. But first, verse 1b. And if there was ever a verse in our Bibles that we do well to underline ten times, I think it's John 13, 1b. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Brothers and sisters, that's going to be the the glorious theme of our meditation and praise for all eternity. What a glorious verse that is. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the word world is important in these chapters. It actually occurs 40 times. Primarily to draw a sharp contrast between Jesus' own, his disciples, and the mass of lost humanity, the world from which his own are drawn, and in which his own must live until our final vindication. If God so loves the world in John 3.16, it's in order to draw men and women out of it. And those sinners who are drawn out of the world, we constitute a new entity set over against the world. Just flip ahead just for a second to John 15, Verses 18 to 19. John 15, 18 to 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, this this moral order and rebellion against God, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. So do you see, the world loves its own, and Jesus loves his own. And the way Jesus displays his love for his own is in the cross immediately ahead, and in an act of self-abasing love. 
this foot washing that anticipates the cross in chapter 13. Go to verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. It had just been served. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So now the stage is set for Jesus to begin washing his disciples' feet. But the first-time reader might be tempted to think, as you read verse 2, oh no, cosmic forces of evil are at work. The devil himself is getting involved here. Satan and Judas Iscariot are in a conspiracy of evil to murder Jesus. And there's actually, there's betrayal within the, the apostolic band itself. This is absolute disaster. But do you see how, what John's done? Do you see how he's actually, he's arranged the account? Uh, it's like, sort of like a sandwich. So, so here's the top slice of bread. Verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Here's the bottom slice. Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. And what's in the middle? This threat of evil conspiracy. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So verses 1 and 3 are John's way of looking at the threat of verse 2 and saying, I think that should be a theological category, by the way, just, you know, this situation, this cosmic conflict It isn't a surprise to Jesus, and it certainly isn't a realistic threat. That's what it is. Everything is proceeding precisely according to God the Father's will. Everything. What did Jesus say back in chapter 10? Because John expects us to remember this. John 10, 17, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Which means Satan here is fighting a lost cause, isn't he? It's hopeless. It's it's like when I play chess against my phone app and every single stinking move I make, it feels like I'm just working myself into a perfectly formed plan by the computer to destroy me in about eight moves. In the same way, Every wicked scheme the evil one puts into action to destroy Jesus, to destroy Christians, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, it is in total conformity with the eternal plans and purposes of God. In God's universe, brothers and sisters, even Satan's work cannot step outside the boundaries of God's sovereignty. Thank God for that. I don't know how people go through life without believing that. And here's something else to consider. With all this power, all this status at his disposal, you might think that Jesus would just kind of in a, in a fiery, fiery flash just defeat the devil right there, just burn up Judas Iscariot right there, you know. Uh, but he just doesn't, he doesn't do that. Instead, he actually washes the feet of his betrayer. This attests to the loving, long-suffering character of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That's that's omnipotence. And that God had come, that he had come from God and is returning to God. So he got up from the meal, 
took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Walking on dusty roads um, takes its toll if you're wearing sandals, and, and many homes aside, assigned the lowest of the servants to wash the visitors' feet. If you were a Jewish slave, you were not allowed to do this. It was too low. Uh, and I'm sure when the disciples arrived at the upper room for their Passover meal, you know, they looked around looking for that lowly servant, that lowly slave to wash their feet, uh, but they didn't see anyone, so they're, just, they're too polite to mention it, so they all just you know, stretch out on their pallets and... Uh, you know, without saying much about anything. No one thought to take on the role of the humblest servant himself. Forget that, right? No one thought of it. No one that is except Jesus. And the way that John marshals the facts shows that decades later, decades later, the Apostle John is still absolutely awed by what he witnessed that night. Jesus knows that it's time for him to go to the cross, to leave this world, to go to the Father, but he's not self-absorbed. He's not saying, I need some me time here. Jesus knows that one of those whose feet he will wash is Judas Iscariot, a man who is sold out to the devil, a man who is in the very process of betraying him, and Jesus washes his feet. Jesus knows that his Father has put all things under his power. He is the omnipotent God. And that he has come from God, is returning to God. He is God. And all along, he's loved his own who were in the world. And now Jesus shows them the full extent of his love, and he loves them to the very end, verse 1. Not only in the foot washing itself, but the cross to which this, to which this foot washing points. He loves them to the end. Knowing all this, verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And then in the hush of that upper room, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. In this moment, the King of Kings, the Son of Man, God himself, kneels before his disciples and he serves them. I've used this illustration before. It's a John Bell classic. Uh, George Patton was the general of the U.S. Third Army, the largest American fighting force in Europe during the Second World War. And on June 5, 1944, so the day before D-Day, he delivered a speech to 15,000 troops, a speech that's since become immortalized by the actor George C. Scott in the 1970 film Patton. But it's a real speech. And the general wrote only briefly of his oration in his diary that evening, quote, As in all my talks, I stressed fighting and killing, end quote. And the gist of his speech was that Americans are winners, winners who love to fight. Patton claimed that all real Americans love the sting and clash of battle. Americans play to win, and that's why Americans had never lost nor ever would lose a war, he said, because the very idea of losing is hateful to an American. Patton went on to say that he felt sorry for the German soldiers that Third Army would soon be facing in battle. They weren't just going to shoot the Germans, and this is a direct quote minus the swear words, 
Third Army is going to rip out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. Now bear in mind, this is a four-star general with two ivory-handled 45 caliber revolvers on each hip speaking to 15,000 soldiers the day before D-Day. I'm not, I'm not sure how women respond to this kind of rhetoric about ripping out guts and, you know, I just saw Jill go like this, like it was nasty. Um, women are funny, it doesn't do anything for them, but if, if a man like that, if a man like George Patton says those sorts of things to a group of soldiers, 15,000 soldiers who are one day away from storming the beaches of Normandy, it stirs up something primal. It acts as a direct transfusion of testosterone to the heart. It fills fighting men with confidence. When a soldier sees bravery and manliness in his leader, then he's glad to couple his own fortunes with that leader. Uh, the private with his rifle thinks, whatever happens to General Patton, this paragon of manhood and confidence and bravery, whatever happens to that great man happens to me. We're a fighting unit. Our, our fortunes are, are knit together. If General Patton is victorious, I'll be victorious too. Patton's generalship has a direct bearing on that private's soldiership. Because who wants to be the follower of a weak man clothed in the shame of defeat? Nobody. I mean, it's proof positive the person isn't fit to lead, right? But the messiahship of Jesus stands in direct contrast to all those notions. There were no displays of kingly or military power that night in the upper room 2,000 years ago. No powers of divine omnipotence. Only what appeared to be, to the disciples' eye, a humiliating spectacle as their warrior king washed dirty feet like a slave. Followed in a few hours' time by the pathetic spectacle of his weakness and shame on Calvary's hill. If that is our leader, brothers and sisters, if that's our God, if that's our king, how are we to follow such a person? In light of Jesus' foot washing and the cross to which it points, what does true discipleship to Jesus look like? What does greatness look like in a kingdom ruled over by a foot-washing, crucified God. And what will it cost us to follow such a king? These questions are fundamental to our self-understanding as Christians. This is, this is literally Christianity 101. It's as basic as it gets. It starts here. So picture the disciples reclining on thin mats around a very low table. Each is leaning on his arm. Usually it's his left arm, and, it, and their feet kind of radiate, away, radiate, radiate outward from that table. And then, and then Jesus pushes himself up from his own mat. Jesus took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist, so he's adopting the dress now of a menial slave. This is dress that was looked down upon by Jews and Gentiles alike in this time. Verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Can, can you imagine how this must have stung the disciples' hearts to, to see this? 
Can you imagine the pain and the regret and the sorrow that just must have shot through them at this moment? One of them could have had the joy of kneeling and washing Jesus' feet. Now it's too late. And I'm sure they were all dumbfounded. They were brokenhearted. What a, what a painful and profound lesson this must have been to them. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He's having a fit. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. After Jesus' death and exaltation, after the outpouring of the Spirit, then he'll understand. Because the washing of his disciples' feet anticipates the washing that's accomplished by the cross and the supreme self-humiliation displayed at Calvary. But Peter demonstrates his incomprehension with the next words that pass his lips. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Or even, you shall never wash my feet in all eternity. It's a very strong expression in the Greek. But despite his protests, Peter is still thinking at the level of only what's socially fitting, right? Like he still doesn't get it. The significance of what Jesus is doing here is completely lost on him. He'll, he'll understand that later, after Jesus is glorified. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And that statement is always true. Friend, unless the Lamb of God has taken away your sin, unless he has washed you by his blood, you have no part with him. None. And certainly Jesus or Peter wants to be linked with Jesus, but he hasn't grasped that the basis of the cleansing foreshadowed by this foot washing lies ahead of the cross. But he does little he does understand what he wants to do with Jesus, so he just does this 180 flip-flop very enthusiastically. Uh, then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter wants a bath. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And now another level, another layer of this foot washing is actually peeled away. That This is a fresh lesson, brothers and sisters, and it's important we see it. In verses 6 to 8, the foot washing symbolizes the cleansing that's the result of Christ's impending death on the cross. But Peter's exuberance in, in verse 9 opens up another opportunity to turn the foot washing to another point. And it's this, that the initial and fundamental cleansing that Christ Jesus provides is a once-for-all act. Sinners who have been cleansed by Christ's atoning work, we, we still need to have subsequent sins washed away. We sin every day, but that fundamental cleansing can never be repeated. <clears throat> this is a picture of, of the once-for-all time element in the cross that we read of in Hebrews 9, 25-26. This is very important. Let me read this to you. Hebrews 9, 25 to 26. Nor did Christ enter heaven and offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he's appeared once for all time at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. We don't need a new sacrifice every time we sin. We don't need a priest in the Mass to offer up, to represent the sacrifice of Jesus Christ the Father over and over and over again. What we need is fresh confession. 
Listen carefully. In his first epistle, the Apostle John writes this, very famously, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And, and the thought here in John thirteen ten is pretty close to that. Jesus is saying, once you're justified, Christian, once you've been bathed in redemption, you are clean. That fundamental work at Calvary through faith has bestowed upon you a positional, legal righteousness, Christ's own righteousness, and all of your sins have been forgiven. From that point on, you don't need a new bath. You don't need to be redeemed again and again and again every time that you sin. All God has to do is daily get the dust off your feet, as it were. <clears throat> 10b. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one of you was clean. And, and doubtless, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he included the feet of Judas Iscariot. Just think about that for a moment. If that proves anything beyond the unfathomable love and forbearance of Jesus Christ, it's that no religious ceremony, no religious rite, no religious ritual, even if it's performed by Jesus Christ himself, ensures spiritual cleansing. Washed, Judas may have been, uh, cleansed, he was not. He had no part with him. We must, we must be born again. We must be born from above by God's spirit. John chapter 3. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. No, they, they haven't understood it, not yet. But what they can grasp, in part, is Jesus' amazing humility and his servant heart. They can see that. And so now the exemplary nature of the foot washing is unpacked. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is saying no emissary has the right to think that he is exempt from tasks cheerfully undertaken by the one who sent him, and no slave has the right to judge any menial task beneath him after his master has already performed it. So now that Jesus, their Lord and teacher, has washed his disciples' feet, which is an unthinkable act, there's every reason why they should also go and wash one another's feet. And, and there's no conceivable reason why they should refuse to do that. If, I don't know if Jesus has done it first. That's the argument. I mean, I mean, what pathetic excuse could they possibly make to beg off once their Lord has set this stunning example of humility and servant-heartedness? But what about us? Right, never mind the, the, 12, the, the apostles 2,000 years ago. What about us? How does this apply to us? Why are we so prone to stand on our dignity 
when we ought to be kneeling at the feet of our new city brothers and sisters? Don't we see our, our desire for prominence? You're here and I'm here. Is death to love, death to humility, death to service. Those who are proud and self-centered have no capacity for love or humility. So when we're tempted to think of our dignity, Christian, our, our prestige, right, our rights, we must open our Bibles to John 13 and get a very good look at Jesus. Clothed like a slave, kneeling, washing dirt off the feet of sinful men who are utterly oblivious to his impending death. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. To go from that, in verse 3, to washing the stinky feet of disciples, in verses 4 and 5, is a long, long step. The majestic, glorious God of the universe comes to earth as a man. That is indescribable humility. Then he kneels on the ground to wash their feet. Then he dies on a cross for the sins of his people. Absolute, infinite self-denial. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Okay, so the question is, is Jesus speaking literally? Should the church institutionalize foot washing? Uh, should a foot washing ceremony have immediately followed our, our Lord's Supper service this morning? Because actually, there are, there are Christian traditions that do that very thing. No, nowhere in the, in the New Testament uh, is foot washing treated as, a, as a, an ordinance or a sacrament, uh, an ecclesiastical rite. Uh, and, and the mention of foot washing in 1 Timothy 5.10 for all you keeners out there, it is no exception. Uh, Paul's just placing it on a list of good deeds of open-hearted hospitality that it qualify, qualifies a widow to be included on the church's support list. She is a woman who washes the feet of the Lord's people. That means she performs all manner of humble task, tasks for the benefit of other people. And it's the same thing here, because the heart of Jesus' command is a humility and helpfulness toward brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Humility and helpfulness, a servant-heartedness. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. There can be no begging off, not from any Christian here. In other words, behave in the same manner as Jesus has behaved. The example we're to follow isn't the washing of feet, per se. It's his servant heart. Jesus' humble service is the real lesson here, and it's a practical humility that governs every area of life, every day of life, and every experience of life. In terms of sacrificing to serve others, there was never anything Jesus was unwilling to do. Why should we be different? Why do we get off the hook? Uh, we're not greater than our Lord, are we? Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Christian, do you want to be 
blessedly fulfilled and happy? Then develop a servant's heart. If Jesus left the glory of heaven to become a man and then further humbled himself to be a servant and washed the feet of 12 undeserving sinners and then hung naked on a cross in blistering agony and shame, bearing the weight of our sin, we ought to be willing to suffer any indignity to serve him. That's true love. That's true humility. John Piper asks this, Why do God-fearing Christians walk through life feeling a humble sense that we owe service to others rather than they owing us? The answer is that Christ loved us and died for us and forgave us and accepted us and justified us and gave us eternal life and made us heirs of the world when he owed us nothing. He treated us as worthy of his service when we were not worthy of his service. Luke 22, 27. For who is greater, Jesus said, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. That is where our humility comes from, beloved. We feel overwhelmed by God's grace to us in the gospel. That's where our servant-heartedness springs from. We're a people stunned by the gospel into humble self-denial. Pray to God that it would be so. In God's grace, strive, strive after this kind of spiritual excellence. Pursue it. Ask yourself, literally, what can I give up? What can I sacrifice? What hard decision can I make? What inconveniences Can I cheerfully bear? What can I alter in my schedule or my children's schedule to better love my new city, brothers and sisters? Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, in the area of concluding application, how can I better lovingly serve my new city brothers and sisters? How can I go low? How can I deny myself for their spiritual good, for your spiritual good? How how can I be last at new city? The slave of all, the humble foot washer. There are hundreds of ways, of course. Uh, If you look in your bulletin, uh, there are two Meaningful ways for the members of New City to serve each other with a tip of the hat to Matthew Amati. And the first is this. Assemble for corporate worship on the Lord's Day. As Christians, the most fundamental act of service is to assemble with God's people for corporate worship. Now, maybe you're thinking, Pastor John, isn't that, isn't that setting the bar a little bit low? Uh, how is showing up to our service on Sunday? Uh, How how is that an act of service? Well, we need to think biblically about what actually happens when the church assembles together. Remember what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 
Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. How do Christians stir each other up to love and good deeds? How do we encourage each other to persevere in the faith by not neglecting to meet together? Or to put it positively, we stir each other up to love and, and, and encourage each other by assembling together. Christian, your mere presence at our Lord's Day gathering serves this church. I know we don't typically think about our presence in the assembly as an act of service, but think about it for a moment. Our lives, all of our lives, are full of discouragements and adversity, right? Uh, Our world constantly bombards us with ungodly ideologies that want to lure us away from the truth of the Bible. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us with lies and condemnations and temptations. He desperately wants to snuff out our faith or make us entirely ineffective in our Christian life, our kingdom work. So we often feel alone. We feel isolated in our schools, our workplaces, our communities. Sometimes, if we're honest, we even begin to question our beliefs. It seems like the whole world is against us. God knows this. That's why we gather one another for encouragement. We need other believers. In each other's presence, we give and receive encouragement by reminding one another that we're not alone. We're in this together. We we assemble with Christians from all different walks of life to testify to one another that Christ is king, that, that God's word is true, and his church will prevail until Jesus returns in glory. Our assembly is our corporate stand against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this present darkness. Together, we who share the same spirit and are united in love and truth display the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3.10. I don't know about you, but I, I need that encouragement desperately, desperately. I need others to point me back to the Bible. I need others to model love and faithfulness to Christ and to remind me that I'm not following Jesus alone. If you have... You have a great opportunity, Christian, to serve the assembled church by focusing on other people. What does that look like? Just practically. Let me just give you some ideas, okay? Come to our corporate worship service early. And spend time before the service talking to visitors and other church members seeking ways to place the gospel at the center of our conversation. We can't mediate God's grace to others if we constantly come to church 10 minutes late and then duck out immediately after the benediction, can we? Uh, If the church was the Lone Ranger show, then yes, we could, but it's not. So come early, stay late, hang around, talk to people, ask them about the sermon. What did they learn? How were they impacted? As, as the Puritans used to ask, I like, I like to turn a phrase, how did you get along under the preaching of the word? Ask them how you can pray for them during the week. Sit by different people each week, not just your BFF or people who speak your mother tongue and share your culture. 
That, that's a Toronto issue. Invite a single person to sit with your family. Sing loud, even if you have a terrible voice. Even if your culture isn't a singing culture, because the word of Christ richly dwells within us. And we're teaching and we're admonishing our brothers and sisters at New City with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we think with thankfulness in our heart to God for what he's accomplished in the gospel. Listen attentively to the sermon because we want to speak about it once it's over, seeking ways to encourage and minister to others, applying the, the, the truth of the word. Christians assemble. That's just what we do. We get together. Don't underestimate the significance of your presence with God's people. Prioritize gathering with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day and our times for evening prayer, Thursday, 7.30, and make every effort to assemble with the church for other reasons as well. Live out your life in the context of this local church, your membership here. Stir up your fellow believers to love and good works and encourage them to persevere to the end. That's what we're doing. Serve them. Second, a second meaningful way for the members of New City to serve each other is to practice hospitality. Turn with me very quickly to 1 Peter 4, verse 9. First Peter 4, 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. But really, we need to start back in verse 7, don't we? We need to be sure we, we don't sort of miss the forest for the trees. But verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, pray, love each other deeply, and offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And we do this, as verse 11 says, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Now, if someone were to say to me, John, the, the world is ending soon. The end of all things is near. What are you going to do in the interim, John? I'm certain the first words out of my mouth would not be, have Eddie and Carla over for lunch after church, and don't grumble about it. My mind just doesn't go there. And I'm sure that the hospitality of God's people would not make the short list of thinking like, well, how is God going to glorify himself through Christ in these last days? The hospitality of God's people. But it's what the word of God says. What am I not seeing? I mean, I mean, this is actually, this is a qualification for elders, isn't it? If a man doesn't practice hospitality, he can't be a pastor. And it's so important, the Apostle Peter says, it's a practice we're to cultivate as the end of the world approaches. So the bar is being raised pretty high here. What's the big deal about hospitality? Well, that's a sermon unto itself, and I've preached on that in the past, noting the very important difference between entertaining and hospitality. We need to keep that in mind. But at its essence, our hospitality proclaims the loving unity of the church. Hospitality requires self-giving, which means it requires sacrifice and energy and loving people more than possessions. We build time into our schedule to invite church members and lost neighbors into our home, maybe for dinner, lunch, coffee, or just to spend time together. We need to encourage them, pray for them, serve them, share their joys and their burdens. How are you doing spiritually, brother? 
How are you doing spiritually, sister? How's, how's prayer coming along? How's your marriage? How's Bible reading going along? Also, we need to accept invitations so others can show us hospitality. Christian, open your home to visiting missionaries. Take in another couple's children and feed them so their mom and dad can go on a date. Welcome unbelievers into your house. Yours might be the only Christian home they've ever entered. We shouldn't use our homes as bunkers where we retreat from people and their problems, but in the words of Rosaria Butterfield, as hospitals, embassies, and incubators, where we receive the lonely and the weary and wounded with compassion. Practicing hospitality is costly. It will affect our budget, eat up our schedule, expend our physical and emotional energy. It may even mean our stuff gets ruined as a visiting child wantonly destroys our property. It's all worth it. Why? Because hospitality is about service, and service requires sacrifice and self-giving. It's so easy to ignore this, which is why the author of Hebrews tells us, do not neglect to show hospitality. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality. I get it. Everybody's busy. We're Torontonians, right? We have jobs to perform, families to feed, kids' sports events to attend, emails to write, vacations to plan, house repairs to undertake, laundry to do, bills to pay, parents to visit, diapers to change. We're all super busy. But Jesus' stunning, humble act of foot washing models how we should serve one another, brothers and sisters. This picture should push us toward intentionality, not inaction. We need to build time into our schedule to practice hospitality. If we don't, it will be neglected. Truly New City, the essence of our relationship with one another is to be grounded in the example of Jesus' humility, service, and love, where rank expresses itself in giving and serving. When he had finished washing their feet, Jesus put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen.